When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. This is Supermouth Dave Drayson. I'm listening to Crazy Train, the best in the world right now. Please. And if you're lucky, Supermouth will be back. It's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, I'm happy to have this gentleman back. He is a Detroit wrestling historian, photographer, and the last credit manager for the Sheik. 
you've heard him before with our charity event we did last year for Children's Hospital. You had heard him on a regular interview before. We also are joined by Dr. Mike Lano, who hopefully will replace this tooth when I can get out to California. But our guest is Supermouth, Dave Drayson. Dave, how you doing, sir? Wonderful. Thanks for having me back, guys. Right on. And I got to ask, because I know we talk off the air often, Dave, and I saw it as Mike was storming in the room, because I don't know how the hell he got the password again. But what was the wine you were drinking there? Uh, this one today I got, it's called, it's a French wine called D66. Um mm. Technically, Department 66, but it's 100% Grenache. Spectacular. Wow. You've got to mention, too, Dave has one of the most sought-after wine stores. He's one of the biggest global wine experts, seller. He can tell you anything, historian of wine. You know, I mean, let's put wrestling aside. Dave is a uh, uh, bon vivant. He knows, like, everything about everything. Music. We'll get yes. into it. photography, as I mentioned. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, certainly knows more than Mike on that one. But now I, I tease. Uh, I know he does. Yeah, but I, I had to continually nag Theo Eric to give me some pointers and be a sensei. You know, it took a little nagging, but he turned out. Dave, how much time? Let me just ask off the cuff. When you came out to LA, how much time did you spend with Theo? Or were you? You always looked like you were busy just doing your thing but you know perhaps in the back you might have been blabbing with theo uh i talked to him you know every so often but he wasn't at you know a lot of the shows he you know at that time back in 73 he picked and choose you know the shows that he wanted to do so usually you know i'd be up at the ring shooting and then there was a long young kid too uh gary dubin he was only there. He only did it for about 14 months, if that. Right, right. Remember what so, happened to him? He went into porno. He did He did some shit film. And, you know, God bless him. He was a, a nice kid, but he ended up doing some porn, some softcore porn. Yeah, he. Uh, when I was out there, he was, uh, you know, doing a couple things with the Partridge Family show. Uh, I don't know if he ever got on, but he was a good young kid, and he was enthusiastic about wrestling. You know, but uh, yeah, when I was at the, you know, uh, just short of two months that I was out there, you know, I was helping Don Wilson and Jeff Walton and uh, everybody in the office. I mean, we set up the shows, we put up the posters, uh, ran the box office. And, you know, once all that stuff was done, I had my camera with me and I was lucky enough. They let me down at the ring uh, to shoot uh anywhere I wanted. It was a great time. And even the boys, you know, meeting a lot of the boys like uh, John Tolis, you know, when we lived in one of Mike LaBelle's houses in Beverly Hills, when we, when I first got there and then he ended up selling the house like a month later and he moved us into a beach house in Santa Monica. Oh, the shithole. Yeah. It wasn't bad. But Gordon Nelson lived with uh, in the same complex. But the one thing I always remember is John Tolis would always wake me up at, at like seven in the morning to go running on the beach. Right. Well, he was <laughs> looking for, uh, as he would put it, he was looking for tail, any girl action. 
Yeah. Well, I was his wingman. Well, at that period of time, I'm sure you knew uh, because Gordon, it was weird. Gordon first came in as himself in around August of 72. Then he put on the hood as, you know, like a knockoff of uh, Tim Woods. He was a Mr. Russing teaming with Don Arnold, who was uh, Dr. Death. That team had the straps for about half the year. Pac Song was there and Kim Duck when you were there. Yep. Colosso Palosetti. Yeah, um, Colosso Palosetti, Ripper Collins, Ruben Juarez. Yep. Raul well, Mata, Ray Mendoza. Well, Sonny King came in. Yeah. You know, he was shocked to see me there. And it was so funny because just the Saturday before at Kobo, you know, my last, you know, when I was there, uh, Johnny, the Sheik hit Johnny Valentine with the fire. And they, you know, the they built it up that Johnny Valentine was in the hospital and stuff. And lo and behold, that Wednesday, John sees me in L.A. He goes, what are you doing here? You know, as I come out to work, you know, with my friends out here for, you know, a couple months, you know, and he was off on his way to Japan. Yeah. Right, let me well, let me quickly, John, let me just ask this, this. And I think, Dave, you know, the story I've told it to you, but maybe you heard differently because you were you know at that point you were talking to johnny i had to dig this out of him years later when i was try trying to do the book rib with him our book together johnny said that labelle promised him the book and he'd already known tolis for a billion years and that was the advertised huge match coming up so johnny came in the famous robe i took pictures of it at kcop channel 13 that saturday and it was for the card 13 days afterwards. So he goes to do two, three gigs for New Japan for Noki. And he gets the call from Mike LaBelle, who said, somehow or other, I've decided not to give you the book. We've got Jules Strombo's going to stay on a few months longer or something like that. And Johnny told Mike LaBelle to fuck himself. And he instead, I guess, either called or got a call from Sandy or George Scott and went to the Carolinas to book and turned that territory over. Because if you remember, the mid-atlantic was kind of you'd see the results it was just like the same old man tag teams against each other george and sandy scott the becker brothers rip hawk and sweet hansen and i couldn't appreciate it, but when johnny came in there he just turned that territory in its head but he never came through at the olympic at la for the long advertised huge match with tolis and instead michael bell had to eat crow beg michael uh, vince senior to send him gorilla monsoon and it was a horrid match whereas tolis valentine would have kicked ass it, it was just monsoon was just too old to be in the ring and it was john said he couldn't even carry him you know he couldn't carry him to an acceptable match so what did johnny tell you and then i'll shut up and throw back to our host jonathan what what did he tell me about what that, well, he didn't. He didn't end up coming back. You know, he was supposed to just come right back and 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 no, be the um, face in the territory as Cowboy Rocky Valentine, the idiotic late fifties name that Jules Strongbow, our genius Booker, gave him. He hated being called that, and it was in our program, Cowboy Rocky Valentine. Although Gene LaBelle said, "Well, you know, he's wrestling pretty much all over the world as Johnny." Well, he never told me anything. You know, the reason why he didn't go to L.A. because it was like when I got back to Detroit. After, you know, my L.A. gig, uh, Valentine came back and, you know, won the strap off the sheet. Uh, the crowd went nuts when they, you know, just his entrance into the ring, you know, not even, you know, when he won the title from Sheik, but the, the crowd went nuts. And it wasn't about a year later, uh, I left and started my managing career and I went down to uh, South Carolina, Charlotte. Uh, 
on was that North South Carolina and Charlotte North Carolina North Carolina uh, living with Sonny King and Johnny Valentine that's when he first came there and started you know doing a big program there and I mean he was there Flair was just starting to hit you know super big uh, Rip Hawks Weed Hansen were still there. Tiger Sonny Conway, yeah, Flair, Johnny put, said he put Flair first with Tiger Conway Jr. And Rick was doing like almost, now they, I, I don't want to put Flair down because, you know, we all love him, but they were kind of slightly racist promos and they would not be PC today. The, the promos he was cutting on uh, Tiger Conway Jr. Yeah, and that's the reason Sonny King left there too, because it was a, per, you know, uh, not a good racial place to be at that time for King, uh, you know, Tiger Conway, you know, that's why Bobo never wanted to go down there. Uh, you know, it was a great time. You know, uh, Sonny King tried to get me a spot managing there, but at the time they didn't have managers and they didn't want one. And I think it was George Scott was doing the book then. And he, you know, treated me nice and stuff, gave me a nice letter of recommendation. And, you know, I had a good time there. Did you get to do some TV or, or anything on, on camera? Never. No, oh, okay. not in the Carolinas, no. All right, John, I better shut up. You see, Dave and I go way back and yeah, I, probably um, talk several days in a row without coming up for air. Oh, no, it's fine. Uh, but as folks will be able to tell, because there's a common like for each other here and just, I guess, being comfortable between the relationship you guys have and I've started to build with you over the re past couple of years and stuff. But before we continue with the blab session, I wanted to mention, and since we're talking territories and all that stuff, and we'll be all over the place, I just poured my last drink of bourbon because last week we lost Jerry Jarrett or in the past couple of days. And I'm sure you guys Another one. had interaction with him and such running memphis and everything else so godspeed sir and thank you for everything you've done and i'll leave it to you guys because i'd be curious to know do you have any jared stories i just wanted to say yeah because that's what i said too when you asked me to come back co-host with our great friend dave i said can we dedicate the show to uh, John, uh, Jerry Jarrett was just a great storyteller, genius. Uh, first as a wrestler, I got to take just a couple of pictures when I would visit family in Atlanta. I would sneak over to Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Chattachoochee, other. This was still Nick Goulas territories. Dave obviously remembers, but uh, he was teaming with Tojo at that time, taking on Don and Al Green, but also. Uh, Eddie Marlin and uh, Jackie Fargo. Prior to that, I didn't get to ever meet or shoot Jackie Fargo. Dave, what's your history like? Did you get to come into uh, uh, any of Goulas Jarrett territory, you know, headquartered out of uh, Memphis? And, you know, his, his Jerry's mom, too. Donnie Leibel and I went in there and, and shot quite a bit of uh, Nashville at the fairgrounds at Miss Christine, you know, teeny was was like running she you know i always credit joyce joyce and annie gunkel as being the first female 
promoters, or in Joyce Farhat's case, being in the office. I don't know if there were towns that she might have promoted. I, I doubt it. Dave is the expert no, on that. But, not at all. But Christine Jarrett eventually went from ticket person to that was her town that, you know, Jerry let her promote to Nashville. And it almost felt like uh, in a small way, the Dallas Sportatorium, like you could smell uh, funnel cakes and all this fried stuff going on there. It felt like a party photographing there and she treated us royally, but Jerry was, you know, running around super busy. I don't know. What, what stories or things do you have memories of Memphis? You went there for WFIA. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, you know, I was there a couple times and Jerry Jarrett, uh, Eddie Marlin, uh, Jerry Lawler, uh, they treated me, you know, with so much respect uh, you know, brought me in, uh, they put me on TV, uh, to hand a, uh, some, one of our WFIA awards. I forgot who we were presenting it to. And then there was a mass tag team. I, I forget their names, really nice guys away, you know, off camera and stuff, but they came out and, you know, gave me the business about, uh, you know, presenting the trophy how come they weren't getting one and they roughed me up. They tore my shirt, which I wasn't expecting that to happen, but, uh, yeah, that happened. And then, you know, doing the stuff with Andy Kaufman and, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, were you there at any point when Kaufman was there with like Jeff Walton's tux? Oh, yeah. Well, no, not with Jeff. I was there when uh, they did the very first uh, Lawler Kaufman thing. Wow. You know, where, you know, he put the brace on and stuff. And I, Andy Kaufman gave me one of those and signed it. I still have it. Wow. And I, and they had on the what did the WWE. Uh, they're, they're trying to find the treasures and stuff around the country. And they went to Bill Apter and Bill Apter gave them one that he had. And we don't, Bill and I talked and we don't know who has the original that was used just after, uh, you know, Lawler, the Lawler match. And he was in the hospital and that he wore on the David Letterman show and stuff. But, you know, Bill sold it to him. Hey, God bless him. He made money off it. But I still have one myself. I'm going to have to send you pictures. Andy's last public appearance when he was battling cancer, and, and it was a weird period of time. He went to the New Art Theater. I think it's on Santa Monica or Wilshire, you know, almost at the beach. And that's where we'd go for midnight movies and breakfast with Blassie and Eraserhead and Pink Flamingos. But he had a, a a mohawk and it was like bleached white. This was Andy Kaufman. And you could tell he looked really in you know bad shape. We didn't know the extent of the stuff similar to you know, like Jimmy Hardo. I know you talk to regularly. They didn't know at all how bad Andy's cough was that it was uh, cancer. Yeah. God bless him. Uh, oh, but he, he did a lot for the Memphis oh. territory. He exploded that place when they were, you know, they were drawing good crowds, but once Andy and, you know, uh, because Andy first went to Vince McMahon senior with that idea to, you know, wrestle women turned down, got it turned down. We don't need you. You can't do nothing for us. Then he, you know, uh, hooked up with Lawler and man, that territory just exploded week after week for the longest time when he came in. It's so nuts because then he brings in Cindy Lauper and then it's like he sees the success of Kaufman and uh, 
in Jarrett in uh, Na- in Memphis, and then all, it's you know time for WrestleMania one. Vince Jr. you know brings in celebrities galore. Uh, you know, I remember I did an interview. Uh, this is when I was managing Malcolm Monroe, and we were on TV, and the uh, announcer, you know knew about my rock and roll, you know, history and stuff and the way I dressed and stuff. And this is when WWE or WWF at the time brought in Cindy Lauper. And I just laughed and I said, they go, yeah, she's a really good draw. And I go, yeah, the only thing she could draw is flies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I want to have- ask, Go ahead. sorry, Dave, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I, these days I have a lot of respect for Cindy Lauper, not for her wrestling junk that she did and what they're doing and hall of fame. And, you know, that's just, but I'm a big fan of her talent. But I wanted to bring up because I'm more the music and wrestling historian and such with this, but I wanted Mike to take the lead with this. And this was on the notes. I sent both of you early this morning, later this afternoon before all this Mike, you wanted to bring up some photography stuff with uh, Dave, because I know, as I mentioned in the intro, Dave, photographer, among many things. So you want to take the lead on that? Because I know nothing about photography. Well, I I wanted to, before we get into because Dave is always, you know, Detroit, Rock City, so many great musicians, Motown, but obviously Dave you know, we know him uh, with Alice Cooper and, and Kiss and all of these things and his incorporation of music into his own character. But I, I wanted to go back to the start because I don't know if I've even asked Dave this or ever heard it. And if I did, maybe it's my uh, senility. I've forgotten. But Dave, were you how did you start watching wrestling? And were you a photographer prior to that or because of your love of wrestling uh, or how, how how did you get started with wrestling and photography? I, you know, I want to see how they merged or might, might have occurred. First of all, my uh, getting into wrestling, you know, I knew nothing about it, you know. Uh, and at the age of, I was, I think I was six years old. Uh, my parents owned a two-story house in, you know, the east side of Detroit, uh, 8294 Olympia, to be exact. Mm. And we had an upstairs and they rented it out to this couple. And it's like, come to find out it's leaping Larry Shane. And I had no idea who leaping Larry Shane was as a six year old kid. And next thing I know, my dad on a Saturday afternoon says, you know, he turns on the TV and says, Hey, watch this. And it was a motor city wrestling. And next thing I know, it's my upstairs neighbor. He's, he's wrestling. And I didn't know what wrestling was and stuff. And, you know, I watched it. And, you know, next thing I know, he comes home and is like, wow, I have this famous wrestler living upstairs from me. And, you know, we got to talking and stuff. And, you know, he always played catch with me, baseball catch out in front. And then there would be neighborhood kids who would come along. And it's like, you know, see him. And they knew who he was. And they'd be asking for his autograph. And I had, you know, I didn't understand. And then there was one day that uh, he asked my mother, can I take Dave to the TV studio with me? They did the live TV show at three o'clock. And then they had the sh- you know, show at Kobo, you know, uh, later that night. So it was like a buildup to that. 
So Larry took me to the studio with him. And it's like, you know, I'm a little kid. And, you know, these other guys there are giants. So we're walking through the hallway of the TV studio. And like 20 feet ahead came out Ricky Cortez. Uh, Ricky the Crusher Cortez out of this doorway. And at the time, he was Larry's biggest nemesis. And I thought, you know, in my mind as a little kid, these two guys are going to fight right in this hallway, and I'm going to be in the middle of it. I mean, I was definitely scared. And then it's like, you know, I don't know if Larry gave him a wink or anything like that. Ricky, you know, backed off into a room, and, you know, he sat me in the front row of these bleacher seats, and I got to watch all the matches. You know, there was like four matches. There was an hour show, and they did the interviews, and Larry, I got to see him wrestle. And from them, you know, it was just an obsession with me. Professional wrestling at that point in time became an obsession with me beyond belief, still to this day. Was this the uh, Alex before or after Alex Karras that period of time? Uh, that got no, pretty major. Before. No, this was before. before. Yeah, yeah. Was the Dick the Bruiser, Alex Karras kind of thing, I think was in 63, 64. Uh, you know, so and I had already been a fan for a couple of years, you know, uh, watching Dick the Bruiser on TV, hated him. Uh, Bobo Brazil was my favorite. Uh, I couldn't stand the chic at all, you know, so it's, you know, I went from the, you know, loving the baby faces as probably we all do to really loving the heels once we, you know, sort of know more and more about, you know, the ins and outs of professional wrestling. Yeah, because actually the heels sometimes are nicer to the marks, you know, sign the yeah. autographs, do all that, than the uh, the faces who sometimes had attitude issues. Was Sheik, before he enjoyed or he bought the territory, was, and that was what, 65 he bought big time wrestling? 64, late in 64, he bought the territory. So, but when you first started going, was he like a constant presence or was he like, you know, on the move, helping out Shire, maybe going, he didn't, hadn't quite started going to Japan, but maybe going up to Canada or other territories, or was he a consistent presence? Well, he, he worked about? mid, he was more of a mid card guy, uh, both at Kobo and Olympia. You know, he'd be going against Bob Nandor, could be going against Larry Shane, could be in a tag team with, uh, you know, different kind of guys. But he was always that mid-card guy, never in the main events, you know, at all. Not until, you know, Doyle and Barnett sold him the territory, which really infuriated Dick the Bruiser because Bruiser wanted to buy the Detroit territory. Because uh, as me and Terry Sullivan did uh, an expose on our Big Time Memory show on Dick the Bruiser, Dick the Bruiser sold out the Olympia Stadium and main evented like 26 straight shows, like over a two, three year period. I mean, he was the biggest thing in Detroit at the time. And when Detroit was, you know, Doyle and Barnett were going to sell, Bruiser wanted to buy it. Uh, but somehow the Sheik, you know, ended up with it. I don't know the negotiations at all, but Bruiser was very uh, let down. He was really mad about it. And when the Sheik bought the territory, uh, Dick the Bruiser tried running, you know, opposition twice. 
first in 1965 before wow. he tried to do it again in 1971. The 71 was very memorable because that was like one of the hottest uh, promotional oh. territory wars ever of all time. There was Montreal, Ruscio's Vachon's, yep. Detroit, and then even if you consider Annie Gunkel for two years out drawing the Atlanta, Paul Jones, not the wrestler, the promoter office, for quite a few house shows, there was some very cool territory wars. Yeah. But then you asked about my first, you know, my first wrestling thing. Here, let me tell you the story of my first photography thing. This would have been 1965. Uh, I was a kid. I was 11 years old. And I, you know, in the summertime, you know, kids in, you know, my neighborhood, we played baseball. You know, you'd go to the ballpark, you know, or, you know, the play field. You'd, you know, play baseball. And then, then it became the echo of the mother's lunch 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 you know down the block and all of us kids would leave our we at that time we left our balls bats and gloves right on the field went home for lunch and we came back you know and nobody ever touched our stuff and then it became like five o'clock this one time and it's like three of the guys go hey yeah we got to go home it's like well, we're still playing we got you know a lot of daylight left what's going on oh we're going to wrestling at Kobo. And it's like, really? Oh. And they go, you want to go? And it was my first time going to a live show at Kobo. So I went home. My mother gave me a couple dollars, you know, for a cheap seat, a hot dog, you know, in a program. And I took my mother's brownie camera. And so now I'm taking pictures. And one, one that really uh, stands out in my mind, my very first time, uh, going to Kobo, Killer Carl Cox, who was a big heel at the time, he's standing on the ring apron and he's just looking up into the crowd and he points up in the crowd. And I thought he was pointing at me and it scared the bejesus out of me. And so, you know, I'm still taking pictures and stuff with this brownie camera. And remember the flash bulbs that you had to put in? So after the, you know, the last bout was over, I opened up the brownie camera, took out the film to see what the pictures look like. I didn't know as a kid that you have to have the film developed. So my very first pictures that I ever took in wrestling never came out. Nobody ever saw them. Oh, you might have had a good shot of that. So were you already taking pictures, playing with cameras prior to? It sounds like you might have, or maybe not. Yeah, yeah with, my, with my mother's brownie camera, uh, you know, uh, I'd go downtown with her, you know, downtown Detroit and be taking pictures on the street, you know, like of the Hudson's department store or, you know, various things that interested me down there uh like uh, there was two coney islands that are still in business there which lafayette coney island and american coney island you know they're right next door to each other and they've had a running feud for darn near 80 years wow. but i love lafayette but i took a picture across the street of both you know establishments uh, you know, and that's what I did. I, I just love playing around with, you know, photography. I took pictures of my family and stuff. But when, you know, I started, you know, really getting into the wrestling thing, uh, I could take pictures. And then I started meeting people, you know, pen pals. Uh, 
friends. You know, I mean, now it's everything's on Facebook and stuff. But, you know, pen pals back in the day where you had to write a letter and send it through snail mail and you trade, you know, information, results and pictures and programs. I mean, you know, our great friends, Diane Devine and Tom Burke and, you know, just so many others, Danny Goddard and Vicki Goddard, you know, just so many people Picard. over the years, yeah. you know, that I traded stuff with. Uh, and, you know, just over, the, you know, time, you know, you learn, you know, better camera, stuff like that. Uh Got to know promoters who would let you shoot up at the ring. So you're not shooting from a, you know, front row seat, you know, and, you know, the, the guys are way off in the distance. Now you're getting no ropes and, you know, you're able to capture these great moments in time of professional wrestling. And like Sam Muchnick, uh, I was like one of the very few people that ever got to shoot up at the ring, uh, ringside at Keel Auditorium. Uh, Sam much like let me do that as a kid and you know I still have those photographs and then when I got to be the photographer for the Sheik at Kobo Arena I mean you know what a coup that was for me as a you know 15 year old kid and you know from then on it's like you know uh you know I got a lot of great photographs I'd done a couple yeah, of books. books how many books do you have on your photos some fantastic books uh technically one of my own, but Brian Bucantis, uh, he did one earlier that used a few of mine, but so many others like uh, Brian Solomon used a lot of my sheet pictures in his recent book. Uh, 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 James, I'm trying to think, uh, the kid out of uh, Kentucky, uh, Mark, 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 James. Mark James, you know, he used pictures, you know, and then I just did an interview with a guy. Uh, the other day, uh, who's doing a Dusty Rhodes book, because I knew Dusty when he first came into the territory here when he first started wrestling. And I have pictures of him when he was an enhancement talent, you know, when he first came in as Dusty Runnels before he became Dusty Rhodes. You know, so, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, good success and, you know, my photography stuff. Uh, problem is, with the internet these days, people are stealing my photographs you know, out of my books or wherever else that they may appear and they're using them, them as their own. And it's like, you know, you know, I'm sure they do that to you, Mike. And there's other photographers around. Well, we fought that battle with the eBay. We tried to do a class action against that guy, blue eyed chap that sold. Yeah. Kalitos, yeah. was Napolitano, afters all of ours. Yeah. And uh, he finally is, is stopping it. But this this is a guy who has taken wrestling photos from like the 1920s, you know, Hack and Schmidt and, and that shit, and puts <laughs> yeah. his watermark, blue-eyed chap. It's hilarious. Yeah. Never shot a photo. Dan Westbrook went after him, has his full name, address, knows where he is. He's somewhere, I, I forgot if he's northeast or midwest. Florida. Florida. What a fucking... Uh, and, and some of the stuff you look at, you know, he, he copied it out of books. There was a guy named Bob Brown, not the wrestler, but this guy out of Vegas. And he would do the same. I pointed him out to you and Eric Goldenberger a lot. And it was infuriating. But you see Blue Eyed Chap and this other guy, Bob Brown, you would see like pages behind the photo. So they somehow scanned a magazine or a book photo. But you see like the other pages behind it. And they didn't bother to crop it. And I'm just going amateur hour. And they... 
you know, they had big books filled with shit and they would go to fan fest and cauliflower alley and stuff and try to sell other people's work, which just infuriates me that and the video bootleggers. But let me ask you back to the Coney Island stuff. These are two amusement parks still in business. No, not amusement park. Coney, Coney Island, the uh, hot dogs, you know, Detroit. Oh. Hot dogs. Oh, okay. So it's like the Philly, the, the two, the fight yeah. between those two outfits as to who has yeah. the oldest and best. Yeah, the, the, oh, yeah, Detroit, Con Detroit Conies, they call it. That's because I'm a huge mark for dark rides, amusement park rides, all the old school stuff. Like if you, when you came out to LA in 73, I think the two Oceanside amusement parks, P.O.P. and uh, the Pike in Long Beach were still around. If you, you might not have oh. ever... As a kid, I used to go to Chicago. Well, there was Boblo Island in Detroit. There was Edgewater Park. But in Chicago, there was a big place. And I can't remember the name of the, you know, the amusement park. But I remember that I used to collect all the tickets, you know, because when you'd have to buy a ticket to get on the ride and they tear the ticket. Well, I had like 25 untorn tickets. And I put them in a frame and matted them and everything else with the, you know, a picture of the amusement park. So I still have that somewhere <laughs> in the closet behind me here. Yeah, I've got all of the A through E Disney uh, old tickets when you had to do tickets. And, you know, the Matterhorn was in the Pirates ride, took E's. The best rides and the shittiest ones were A's, like uh, Mr. Lincoln. That. Yeah, well, you know, like so much stuff, you know, memorabilia and stuff in the closet behind me here. Thank God I got, uh, you know, the sheik looking after all that stuff. Nobody goes in that closet without looking at the sheik. You know, my <laughs> uh, gift from uh, superstar Billy Graham, he painted me a portrait of the sheik. And, you know, God bless Billy, who's uh, in ill health right now, too. I was going to ask you the story of that because he did some great work. So that's Eddie. That's not Cosro. Who came later? No, no, this is uh, Eddie Farhat Sheik. Hey, yeah, you think yeah, I'd hang Billy, up? Billy, the, the Jerry Graham never brought Billy in. You know that story how uh, Jerry discovered Billy at some gym. He was driving, I guess, I don't know what happened. He was leaving Detroit, coming back out to do a, a shot or two for LaBelle, or maybe to try to get on LaBelle's cards, and meets Billy Graham there, drags him into you know, LA, basically, uh, Billy had two or three matches teaming with Jerry, this is 1970, around June. And then uh, either, I think Joe Strong was the one who told Jerry, let me send the kid up to Stu to get trained, blah, blah, blah. But Billy Graham never worked. Did he ever work for Sheik, even a one-shot? Yes. He worked for him one time. And ever since then, uh, Superstar Billy had so much respect for Sheik. And... Wow. Me and him uh, over the years have, you know, traded emails and stuff and a couple phone calls here and there. Uh, and he would always, you know, praise, you know, the Sheik. Uh, and, you know, we got to talking and it's like I knew he did uh, paintings because he did, you know, uh, one for Terry Funk that I know of. Uh, he did a couple other ones. And, you know, quite a few did Patera. He did his friends. You know, they were they were going to take on Mike LaBelle. You remember that story in 70s? Billy had dropped the title. He was mad Vince Senior didn't turn a baby face because he was selling the first merch in the Tri-WF area, like T-shirts. He had a whole plan to turn baby face and keep the title. Vince Senior wouldn't have it. So he came, came out to L.A. and it was going to be like a... Uh, 
Eddie Einhorn, IWA thing, he had uh, Ladd verbally agreeing, Koloff and Patera, they would try to run opposition in, and start in L.A. against Mike LaBelle, who I guess Billy had, I don't know, briefly. Well, I did, a, I did a tribute video, uh, like I do a bunch of them. If anybody right. go, ever goes to my YouTube channel, uh, if you want to see some of my tribute videos with my photographs, uh, just go to Dave Brzezinski on YouTube. And, you know, you'll see stuff on Sheik, Bobo, Furpo, Tex McKenzie, Fez, Buddy Rogers, everybody. Uh, but I did one for Superstar and I wanted his approval first before I put it up on YouTube. And he says, I love it. It's beautiful, but please don't put it up. And he explained why, wow. because uh, he loved the early stuff that he did. But when he got into that karate kind of thing, mm. he was really embarrassed that he ever did that. So, mm. you know, and I had some of those photographs in there. And that's why he never wanted me to put it up on YouTube, which I, you know, respected his wishes on that. So who did he work with when he came in to, uh, to work the one shot for Sheik? Who did he work with and what was the situation? Or just a, a one shot? Yeah, it was a one shot. And I think if I'm not mistaken... Uh, I think he worked with Bob Backlund, Howdy Doody. For, on the Sheik's card? Yeah. Really? And the funny thing about that is Howdy Doody wrestled twice. You know, uh, I didn't understand that either. Nobody in the arena knew who the heck, you know, Superstar was anyway, unless you read the magazines at that time. And nobody knew knew who Backlund was. But she, you know, was still doing, you know, trying to do his TV stuff you know, from Kobo. So probably they had Backlund go against, uh, you know, an enhancement talent. And then he went against uh, Billy Graham. You know, uh, I'd have to look in my book here. I'll give it a plug. Mark James. It's like his uh, results of the whole Detroit territory, you know, from 1964 to 1980. Uh, you can go on Amazon or whatever, but Mark James book. I mean, he's got results in here of Detroit TV, Kobo, uh, Canton, Cincinnati, Dayton, Lima, Ohio, Toronto, and everywhere in between. If you like results, this Mark James book, wrestling record book, Detroit, nineteen sixty four to nineteen eighty, spectacular. And I was going to say another thing. I'm jumping around, and I'm going to throw back to John. Was when we were all doing pen pals, that sort of ended up. A lot of us started going. Oh wait, we're going to start. We didn't have. There was no uh, Super Betamax. That wouldn't come until like late seventy four for the <laughs> fans. Uh, you know, the fans with some money, but we were taping with old cassettes. First, uh, Rich Frisk was one of the first guys I know when the sh when Roy Shire started, had his first card, whatever it was, because he started doing TV in 60, but he didn't even run a live show till 61. Rich Frisk with his TV with Walt Harris, who was a local, you know, the strongest network, non-network affiliate, Channel 2, Walt Harris doing the commentary. So an actual news guy doing wrestling commentary and then later roller derby for Jerry Selzer. Uh, Rich Friss, fan, who's later a ref for Roy Shire, taped on Reel to Reel the audio for every single Shire show. And so later on, years later, I would do that in L.A. and, and you know, trade tapes with, you know, Rizzy would send the, the New York interviews like with King Curtis and 
when he held the tag straps, those insane, fantastic interviews. George Bepu, Jeff Walton, and I would get his audio cassettes from Hawaii and, and you know, Diane Devine and so on. And somebody from Detroit, I can't remember who was sending over, them. Over your right shoulder. I like your laser disc player there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's your left shoulder, Mike. <laughs> your laser disc I'm a little tired. I was jamming to get back here, but uh let me throw back to, to so were you doing any of the, the audio cassette trading late sixties no. or seventies stuff? No. So we started doing you know, so I can pull out the old KCOP theme song, which nobody even remembers. I was trying to ask Jeff, where did you get that? Was it generic music with the stuff where you would see at the beginning? It was just visual of Tolis getting his head thrown into various turnbuckles and selling. You know, right now and for years, I can kick myself in the behind because every time from this would have been starting in like 1963, 1964, all the way through maybe 1970, 71. Uh, every time big time wrestling would show on TV here, I wouldn't I would take just the interviews. You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, Lord Layton would be, you know, interviewing Bobo or, you know, uh, Ernie Roth, uh, everybody, Mark Lewin. And I taped those on my, out of recorder on cassette tapes. So I had that whole collection of stuff. But then it's like uh, when I started getting myself into music and my bands and, you know, things like that, I would take the, <laughs> uh, tape over those cassettes to tape my band stuff you know we were doing you know recordings in the studio or we'd be rehearsing and stuff and i'd tape over this stuff only because i was too cheap to go buy new tapes and to this day i regret you know taping over that stuff and john i didn't get your uh email with the attachment until just now because uh, we were i was out all day but i'm sure john's going to want you to talk about now Music, you know, the third level. There are many facets of Dave Brzezinski, Dave Drayson, uh, the performer, the wrestling photography, but now the music and how you incorporated that into your heel manager character going, taking that all over the world. Which was uh, the direction I was going to go managing, but go ahead, Mike. Oh, okay. Uh, you were going to manage too? No, 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 no. With the, I was going to get into the managing. In the... Before even Cindy Lauper's uh, then... Uh, fiance. I don't think they ever got married. Then they broke up. Dave, Dave Wolf. What is his name? Dave Wolf. Uh, and and Jimmy Hart. You would see when he was brought in, he started wearing the ties. But I think he stole that from Dave because Dave was wearing uh, musical notes on his outfit. I think before Jimmy Hart even did. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You see, I oh, think I, he took that from you. He may have, but you know, I'll say this. You know, I don't get the credit, and I don't care about it. But when I first started managing in 1974, even prior to that, when I was doing uh, demo uh, interviews that the Sheik would be taping me at our, you know, Williamston office, I mean, he was grooming me, you know, uh, onto how to do promos. And I would always use entrance music, you know, in the background of the promos. Mm. And even when I started managing, Almost every guy that I managed, I was using entrance music. This is way before WWF and WWE was doing it. I mean, Which I was before Michael Hayes. 
Hard yeah. Hayes. Was this yeah, before it was way Michael before, Hayes? Way before, before Freebirds. Him. You way know, before. I, was, I was using, you know, like Motley Crue, Wasp, you know, just that entrance music for my guys. Nothing for the chic, of course. Uh, and, you know, I don't get the credit for it. Everybody says, oh, Vince McMahon in, introduced all this, you know, rest, you know, uh, music, you know, entrances and stuff. And it's like the only one that I can say who did it prior to me that I know of is when Sheik brought in. This would have been 1968, I think, uh, 67, 68. He brought in a wrestler named Batman. And over the loudspeaker, yeah, over the, no, not Tony Marino. Was it not? Yeah, this was another guy uh, who came in and they, over the loudspeaker, they played the Batman entrance music. <laughs> so this happened twice. So this would have been over a two week span, one Kobo show and he appeared at another Kobo show. There was no more Batman. I guess ABC contacted Sheik or the office and said, Hey, you're on, you know, infringing on copyright here. So the Batman never appeared again and never did the music. Uh, but then in, you know, like New York and Pittsburgh and stuff, Tony Marino, he first started out as Batman with a one T, but then, you know, I guess, uh, Bruno or, you know, whoever, you know, was doing, uh, Pittsburgh and Philly, you know, um, promoting at that time, ABC got a hold of them. And Tony Marino says, I'll just add another T to it. So his name was B-A-T-T-M-A-N, and ABC couldn't do anything about it. And he made a nice career of it for a few years. When Bruno was running Pittsburgh. Vince let him run that for like a year or two using guys like Johnny DeFazio, a young Johnny John L. Sullivan, yeah. Johnny Valiant, and, and others there. Phil oh, Sack, the, I think. The Phil Sicilians. Sack, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tony Altamore and Albano. Yeah, Tony Altamore and Lou Albano. And then, you know, they had their name was the Sicilians. And then I guess the mafia came and, you know, threatened them <laughs> to get rid of that name, which they ended no, up having to do. No wonder and I think Albano drank They've just left L.A. in 74 when Gorgeous George Jr. came in from the Deep South to L.A. And they haven't come out with uh, a male manager spraying the ring with Chanel number five and all that. So it was May, June of 74. And Gorgeous George is not his last widow, but the widow, the more famous one, Cherie Dupree, who did all the valeting of him. She sued Mike LaBelle or threatened all that. They changed his name to the gorgeous one for the Saturday TV after that. And, and he was gone. It was too much trouble for the office, you know, similar thing, but the, very quickly, the history of music entrance stuff, gorgeous George with pomp and circumstance and buddy Rogers, X amount of times used uh, Nat King Cole's nature boy. Uh, gosh. And then uh, bad, bad Leroy Brown used that in Dallas in 77 and 77 Los Angeles, that theme just on a long loop way before the Freebirds, and I think there were some other ones. Even Ray Candy, when he had the hood on in Florida, was using some jazz song named something super, I guess it was called Superfly, but it was a well, jazz. I, I, I can see Jonathan in the background. He's jumping up and down, <laughs> waiting to ask questions here. No, go, go ahead. I'm enjoying listening. Okay, let's go. Let's keep on the music. Jonathan, let me, because I haven't opened up the attachment. I better let you ask your music 
uh, et cetera questions? Well, it wasn't music per se, but I do have one because Mike brought this to my attention earlier. And I figured I'd wait and save this till we were here because me and Dave were talking throughout the week, setting us up and all that stuff. But what kind of relationship do you have with Alice Cooper? Uh, none really. Okay. Uh, I mean, I've been to a few of his concerts and backstage back in, this would have been back in the seventies when I was the photographer at Kobo. Uh, but then it was like, this was just pre COVID. Uh, he and I got together for dinner, uh, downtown Detroit because he was in town, uh, doing a new, uh, CD of, like a Detroit tribute kind of thing. I don't know. I can't remember the name of the CD that he came out with. It might've been like Detroit stories or something like that, but he got a bunch of musician, Detroit musicians that he did the CD with. Uh, and, you know, him and I, you know, had dinner, his wife, his manager was there, my wife, a uh, couple other friends of mine from LA. And we just had a great time. Well, I want to jump into managing the art of managing because, and you said, what was the line you said to me the other day when we were talking about, well, where are we going to go with this uh, as far as topics and stuff? You go, what What did you say? It was almost like I was a stalker or how, how did you put that? Well, because <laughs> you knew so much about my career. It's like, okay. you know. You know, a lot of people don't. Uh, I mean, when you sent me like a little topic thing that you wanted to touch on, I mean, one of the first things that I saw was the scholar. And it's like, how many people in the wrestling world know who the scholar was? And it's like, uh, the scholar, that's what the sheet. Well, here, let me set this up in a way. Better than George Steele, who was the student, by the way. Yeah. But when I was doing practice promos and I was still the photographer, you know, for Sheik, you know, uh, he knew I wanted to be a manager. And it's like back then, this would have been mid 70s. I mean, most managers were ex-wrestlers or guys who could really talk on the mic for guys who couldn't to put them over. Now, here's an, you know, 18 year old kid wanting to become a manager. And it's like, it didn't happen, never happened in, you know, the wrestling world up until that time. And the Sheik says, well, you know, you're my photographer, people around Kobo and around the territory, they know you, they, they've seen your face and stuff. So how would it be if I just one day put you as a manager and not the photographer and people would go, well, you know, what's the, wait a minute. So I understood that. So he goes, I'm going to put you under a mask. And my good friend, Danny Goddard, bought, uh, borrowed me a white mask that looked like uh, Mr. Wrestling one. And he sent it to me. And it's like, I put it on and I did a few practice promos with it. And she goes, perfect. I'm going to have you and I'm going to call you the scholar. And it's like, oh. Okay, you know, I was hoping for the Dave Drayson kind of thing, but now I'm the scholar. So my first three shows that I ever did, this had been October of 1974, 
I did Pontiac, Michigan, Kalamazoo, and Battle Creek. And I managed a uh, beautiful Ben Justice, who had mm-hmm. just, you know, turned to heel at the time. You know, uh, he was a good, when he was a baby face, he was working with the Stomper. Um, but then he turned heel and Ben wasn't a really good talker on TV. So Sheik says, well, I'm going to put you with him. You could do the talking for him. And, you know, and I did the first three shows and that was it. Uh, I couldn't figure out how come I'm not getting any more bookings. Now I'm more back to, you know, uh, you know, shooting, you know, pictures of Kobo for Sheik and writing the body press, you know, program. And it's like, that's where they figured, you know, they were making the most money from me, you know, because my first three payoffs, I got $15 each, you know, which, you know, I thought that was, you know, I didn't think it was big money, but, you know, hey, at least I got my foot in the door. You know, but my, I'll never forget this. My third show, working with Ben Justice and all three shows, we worked against Tony Marino. And Tony Marino was a good friend. And I'll even say this about Tony. Uh, The very first time I managed uh, Ben, October 9th, 1974, against uh, Tony Marino, uh, I did one of those atomizer things, you know, spraying Ben beautiful and I sprayed it in Tony's eyes and, you know, that started the match and got the heat going. And after the bout was over, I think I interfered and we got disqualified. Uh, but that night away from Pontiac, Michigan, Tony and I went down to Greek town in downtown Detroit and celebrated uh, my first you know, day of managing. He bought me dinner and he even bought me a mini bottle of champagne that I never opened because at that time I didn't drink that I still have to this day. But the third show that I worked, we were in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. And me and Ben get in the ring. They introduce, you know, Tony first. And now they are introducing, you know, Ben. And then they introduce, you know, and accompanied by his manager, the Scholar. And out of the cheap seats way up in the bleachers, I hear, hey, Brzezinski. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, and I didn't sell it at all. And it's like, you know, nobody else in the arena probably knew what the heck a Brzezinski was either. So, oh, man, somebody, you know, knew who the heck I was. Well, within all that, before I get into the art of managing and all that kind of stuff. I'm curious to note within that story there, I heard somewhere else as part of my stalkerism, I guess you would say. (laughs) I say that tongue in cheek, but you told a story about getting into managing and all and a chic seeing you and getting kind of upset in a, his production truck. So what was the story? Well, because you know, I worked the first three shows like I just talked about. This would have been in October of 1974. And through the end of 74 and into 75, I was still writing the body press and, uh, you know, doing the photography for him. And I was still waiting for that chance. And I wasn't going to go up to the Sheik and say, hey, you know, the, you know, Shit or get off the pot, mister. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and then it was like early 1975. 
Killer Brooks, Tony Marino, Ben Justice, Dr. Beach, uh, Sheik's Booker, Jack Kane, and his uh, main announcer, Terry Sullivan, they started their own promotion, Universal Wrestling, UWA. Uh, they, you know, just didn't show up for a Kobo show. And the very next night they had a show in Toledo and then they had TV and everything, uh, but they didn't have a manager. And they contacted me and said, Hey, you know, here's your opportunity. You know, Tony and uh, Brooks, they want you to be our number one manager. And it's like, okay, I'm going to jump at the chance. So I worked a, my very first show I worked for them at the Mimico Arena in Toronto. And I did that show, drove home. I got home at like four in the morning. And at the, at the same time, uh, I had a separate job. I was working for a local TV station in Detroit, Channel 50, and I was writing TV commercials. And I had a client that we were going to go and film three commercials that I had worked on, written everything up. and But we were going to use the Sheik's mobile TV truck to film them instead of, you know, doing them at the studio. It was a lot cheaper for my client. So we're there. We're doing, you know, the commercials and everything. We get done. And it's like, Sheik pops in. It's like, oh, cool. And it's like, he goes, you know, he gives me the finger. Come here. We go in the TV truck, and boy, news traveled fast. I hear you worked the show up in uh, Toronto last night, eh, against Tunnies, who he was still booking, you know, for the Tunnies back then. I go, yeah. He says, eh, I'm very disappointed in you. I says, well, you know, I've been waiting for my opportunity you know, to manage, that's what I want to do. You know that. And he goes, you should have came to me first. I says, I've been waiting. And it's like, you know, we talked a little bit. And then it, his final words were, I suggest you really watch yourself because you never know when someone's going to break your legs. Huh. And it scared the living hell out of me. You know, it's like anybody who's around the sheep. Is a scared if he says something or he doesn't say something. You always walk on eggshells when you're around that guy, you know? And it's like scared the heck out of me. And I stayed close to my, you know, clients and stuff. Nothing happened. And, you know, I went on to my managing career. And, you know, unfortunately, the Sheik's promotion just went downhill. And, you know, not to say that I had anything to do with it. But then years later, uh, you know, when the big time wrestling folded and I was doing shows for, you know, Malcolm Monroe and Al Costello, uh, Mike Anthony and Ricky Cortez, all three were doing, you know, different shows around this, you know, uh, Detroit and Ohio. Uh, big Jim Lancaster, I was working shows for him, worked with Al Snow, um, you know, but then there was this one show uh that I'm working on, I'm managing Malcolm Monroe and I get in the dressing room and there's the sheik. And it's like, Oh, Oh, you know, should I, you know, should I, you know, just keep my distance? Does he still want to break my legs or anything like that? But he was the one that put his hand out and said, Dave, good to see you. 
then we talked a little bit. He had said, you know, he heard about, you know, my managing career and stuff. And he didn't have anybody, you know, there was no Eddie Creechman at that time or Abdullah Farouk for him. And he asked me if I would manage him that night. And to, to this day, it's the greatest thrill in my wrestling career. Uh, the first time I managed the Sheik and I managed him for the next couple years, you know, off and on here and there. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me for one sec. Hello? Triple H. Triple H, WWE. Yeah, you want me to what? You want me to manage in WWE? Hey, hey! Right now, I'm doing an interview with my good friend Mike Leno on TV right now. So, you know, yeah, no, you can't. You can't have any of my time right now. Go screw yourself, Triple H. God damn it, you had a chance in the 80s and 90s to use me, and you didn't. So, you go to hell, Triple H. I'll, I'll call you back, Jerry. Son of a bitch. Yeah, Vince McMahon kills goddamn managers, uses, uses goddamn, you know, the, the, the TNA, the tit and ass kind of crap with women. You know, kills managers, you know, off the face of the planet. Now he's calling me and asking me to come manage. You know, he's got Paul Heyman. You know, forget it. I don't need his money or anything. He's and, desperate. And I was going to say there, because it's convenient, before I ask the other managing question, it's convenient you got the call because uh, pay-per-view is in Montreal, and I know there was a great trip story you told of a major snowstorm going to and from Detroit or excuse me Montreal oh. but oh Jesus that was I I always call that uh you know it can't get any worse you know I I don't want to get into the yeah. story per se go, because go check it out on big time uh memories I'll put it that way if I can mention big time memories if you know uh, people who you let know, me put that over. Those are the greatest free documentaries, and it's on one of the greatest territories ever, done in the most professional way by Dave and Terry. It's amazing. It's a learning experience for everyone, and it's absolutely free. And you're going to yeah. hopefully do some more. Well, some more you, know, you, you just yeah. say Terry, but people watching, it's myself and Terry Sullivan, who you know. Me and him met as fans back in 1967 and have been friends ever since. And, you know, I got was lucky to get into the wrestling, you know, business with the Sheik and big time wrestling as the photographer and writing the body press. Terry got his, you know, opportunity to be a ring announcer and then, you know, lead, uh, you know, commentator, you know, for the TV show. And then he went on to, you know, work once, you know, big time wrestling folded. He did uh, Bruiser Bedlam, you know, for Dick the Bruiser's, you know, promotion that came into Detroit and stuff. So when the opportunity came for, you know, to tell the true story of, you know, the big time wrestling territory, uh, we got, you know, involved with Rocks TV and they gave us the forum to do this show that we didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, we were doing features on, you know, a particular wrestler doing like a, this is your life. 
and we, you know, tell, you know, facts and figures and everything about this wrestler. And we'd interject our own personal stories, you know, into them. So the show became, you know, rock. I mean, if you ever go to YouTube, go to Rocks TV, R-O-X-T-V and Big Time Memories. And we have done exposés on The Sheik and Bobo and Pampero Furpo, Tex McKenzie, everybody that worked the Detroit Territory. Plus, we've done what's called Dressing Room Confidential episodes, where uh, they our stories just don't fit into a particular guy. And we tell these hilarious or, and or, you know, uh, adventurous stories that have never been told to anybody before. And our shows have, you know, got a big following. We, you know, uh, the best way to watch them is on YouTube, the, you know, uh, re replays. But they've been on so many different forums across the world that we we have such a big following and you know uh just so many even wrestlers you know who contact me you know that are you know still work the big time or still alive anyway uh they enjoy them uh, you know jim Cornette <laughs> enjoys god them most people god damn no uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, it, you know we're very proud of you know the you know a uh, lot of the episodes that we've done, uh, people still ask for more, but, you know, right now we're on hiatus. Uh, we're not sure if we're going to do any more. Uh, I'm in negotiation right now for PBS station in Detroit who wants to air them. Uh, but we may have to refilm and do different things, you know, to get them in their time frame because some of our shows, you know, when we started out, we were doing like, 20, 25 minutes, but then we do, like, we did a two-part Dick the Bruiser that was, like, 45, 50 minutes each episode. Yeah. You know, some of our, you know, dressing room confidentials, you know, uh, we'd start, we'd have, like, four or five topics, but then something would trigger a memory, and Terry would go, and then he'd say something, and it'd trigger a memory of me, and, you know, we'd throw that in there, and it just snowballed into these great episodes. So if anybody wants to learn the true history of the Detroit territory, that's what I say. Go to Rocks TV, Big Time Memories, you'll learn it all. Well, my final question, well, I have two. Uh, but one, going back to the managing and the art of managing. And you mentioned when Triple H called there about Paul Heyman and such. And who's killing it, even though he's not using the manager name per se. But managers, especially during the time you guys were coming up with the industry and such, they were the mouthpieces that brought folks to the buildings, which is where everybody made their money. But for you, I know you were fortunate enough to learn the art of the promo and also what to look for and what not to look for by the great Bobby Heenan. So could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, when I was, you know, uh, a fan, let's put it that way. I was always a fan of the managers more than anything, because when they'd go on TV and they'd say these outrageous things, you know, uh, it's like, 
you got to be kidding me. You know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen or this or that. Uh, you know, I learned that. And, you know, I was fortunate when I, you know, wanted, you know, guys that knew I wanted to be a manager, Bobby Heenan, George Cannon, and Ernie Roth, Abdullah Farouk, all three of them helped me, you know, along the way. You know, I would ask them and, you know, dig in their mind. Uh, George Cannon helped me, you know, really how to do a good promo. Uh, Ernie Roth, you know, uh, told me and taught me, you're not the focus as a manager, you know, out at the ring. You know, you're a secondary guy. You're, you know, there to help your guy. So the focus isn't on you. Never put the focus on you until the right time. You know, whether the match was going a little slow or you needed to, to distract the referee so you're, you know, like say the sheet needed to do something, you know, to dig out a pencil or, you know, choke, you know, with a rope or, you know, whatever it could be. And Bobby Heenan, you know, he was like, you know, uh, even though I learned, you know, all the other stuff from the other guys, Bobby Heenan really told me about, you know, taking bumps. And he showed me how to take bumps. And it's like when I was a fan, you know, watching managers and watching, you know, the in-ring action, sort of I knew what I wanted to see, you know. Come when the heat's really building and the finish is going to come and and or if the manager is going to get involved, you know, or, you know, the baby face goes over. What could be better? I mean, the fans are going nuts to start with. What could be better? He gets his hands on the manager. The pop, the, the pop of the crowd just triples. So it's like, you know, I was athletic. Uh, you know, played baseball in all sports as, you know, a young kid. And I was, you know, 142 pounds and six foot two. And I can, you know, I was that agile and athletic. So I let these guys, you know, I knew at the end of most of the matches that I've ever worked, I'd get involved. Even if like, you know, say, you know, uh, the Sheik or Malcolm Monroe won. Okay. But to save face for the other guy, say Bobo or Louis Martinez or whoever our opponent was, you know, they lost. Now the fans think, oh, but if I get involved and let them, you know, give me bumps and, you know, whatever, you know, Bobo giving me the headbutt, you know, and holding on to me, you know, he would hit me and I'd stagger around the ring and I'd fall back into his arms. He'd hit me again. I'd really stagger around the ring, but I fell back into his arms again. And then he'd give me another one and I'd, you know, do a bump over the top rope or I'd do a flip in the corner. Now the crowd's going nuts. They're going home happy. Mm -hmm. So that that's, you know, my take on what I wanted to see and what I thought I should give to the fans in return. Well, Bobby Heenan had the best line I ever heard when it comes to managing and the business in general for the art form that he had and the other greats do. And that is you manage like you're a wrestler and you wrestle like you're a manager. Exactly. You just mentioned a guy's name that was going to be part of my final question because I heard you tell a story about him. 
which I found hilarious, and that's Louis Martinez. And <laughs> there, there was a, apparently... Ariba. Yeah. No, not Tito. Uh, yeah. no, no, Louis, no, Louis was the first guy to do Ariba. Yeah. Right. But uh, there's apparently a story where he may have pissed off the sheik and you were oh. inside him. Can you tell this story? I'll, I'll try to tell it as quickly as I can. Okay. We're in Date, Dayton, Ohio. Sheik versus Louis Martinez. We're in the dressing room, and it's like, you know, you it's customary you be to the show an hour before time, you know, before showtime. So it's 8 o'clock, you know, showtime, 7 o'clock, everybody should be there. It's almost 8 o'clock. Louis Martinez ain't there yet. It's 8.30. Louis Martinez ain't there yet. 9 o'clock. It's like, now... Sheik is, you know, thinking, well, we have to do a, you know, substitute match because Louis ain't going to make it. So a little after nine o'clock, Louis Martinez shows up. And I could tell Louis had a few Wiedemann's beers. <laughs> and it's like he gets in the dressing room just enough time to, you know, he's dressing and we're going over the finish. So it's like, okay, you know, and Louis, you know, goes to the Sheik. She, I, I must be a little sick. You know, I must have flu or something. No bumps, please. No bumps. She goes, oh, okay. So anyway, we go out for the match. Match starts. Bang, bing, 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 bing. You know, they're doing their regular stuff. Then at one point, she throws Louie outside the ring to set up the finish. And what he did, Louie would always, you know, go outside the ring and then he'd crawl under the ring and surprise his opponent from the backside. He'd crawl under the ring and the fans could see him coming up. Bing, bang, boom, a whole big, you know, thing going to the finish. She throws Louie out. Louie goes under the ring. And it's a while. It's a while. Louie ain't coming out the other end. It's like, you know, I go over to Sheik and she comes over to me and goes, what the hell's going on? And it's like, I don't know. So I look under the ring. There's Louie, mid-ring, <laughs> curled up in a fetal position like a baby. He fell asleep. Uh. Holy crap. So I told Sheik, it's like, you know, yeah, yeah he's, he's sleeping under there. So anyway, <laughs> she gets out, goes under the ring. And then the next thing you know, both of them come out the opposite end. They get back in the ring and, you know, they're trying to set up the finish. So it's like, oh, so what happens is she picks up Louie and he gives him a body slam. And it's like Louie said, no, no bumps. Nope. Louie is shivering in the middle of the ring and fans can't, you know, they're seeing that. But I can hear Louis saying, oh, don't shit, don't shit. <laughs> so it's like, uh, then it's like, you know, oh, geez, Sheik doesn't know. So it's like Sheik, you know, does a couple things, hits him, hits him, and takes him up, gives him about another body slam. Now Louis is really reeling in the ring, and I can hear it, don't shit, don't shit. And then it's like, you know, Sheik, you know, goes, gets him. And he was going to pick him up again and didn't know what, you know, what was going to happen. Well, Louie reversed it and he gets the Sheik, hits him, bomb, bomb. Sheik sits down and Louie's one of his famous holds is the Indian death lock where 
the you know Sheik is sitting, and Louis you know puts one leg over the other, and he's sitting on his shoulders, and he picks up his legs. So that's the move he did. So he gets the Sheik. Sheik's sitting. Louis gets on top of him, picks up his legs, and he lifts up Sheik's legs, and he looks up in the sky. He goes Arriba! And the next thing I could see, uh oh, Louis's trunks in the back are blowing up like a puffer fish and it's like he does another Arima! and then it's like all i hear is like that and just crap is coming out of all orifices out of louis's legs you know it's running down his legs and it's running down the sheik's back and now sheik is like what the heck he breaks up the hole and it's like he feels us. Oh my! And it stunk. It stunk so bad. So she comes over to me, jumps out of the ring. He says, "Stall." He runs all the way back to the dressing room, and I'm like, I'm on the apron, and I'm you know taunting Louie, and I'm you know the referee. Now I'm telling the referee, "Hey, I got to stall." You know, they got to go in the finish here. And it's like, we stalled for like, it, it seemed like forever, but it was like two, three minutes. Apparently, Sheik went in the shower, showered off, and came back to get this you know, poop off of him. <laughs> he came back in the ring, and it's like, boom, boom, boom. And they didn't go through the finish that they were supposed to. They just ended up fighting all the way back to the dressing room. Now we get back into the dressing room. You know, match is over, both disqualified. Sheik says, everybody out. All the guys in the dressing room, because at that time we shared one dressing room. We didn't have two separate dressing rooms. All the boys and us, we got out. And next thing we know, we could just hear the Sheik just beating the hell out of Louie. You know, and it's like, you know, we finally got back in. And uh, I ended up driving Louie home. Uh it was a bad situation, but that was the night <laughs> Louis pooped all over the sheik. Doctor Mike, do you want to have anything to wrap here on your end? Oh, that reminds me of uh, Andre, uh, who was heavily drunk in Mexico. His only tour of Mexico with the uh, Bad News, Alan Coage and uh, Rodney Anawahi, later known as Yokozuna, where Andre accidentally shit in the ring as well. Uh, Dave, I'm just going to say. To learn bumps, did uh, was uh, Lou Klein already gone, or did Louie uh, train you for bumping? Lou Klein? Yes, Lou Bestie. Oh, God. No, I wasn't going to pay that exorbitant amount of money to have him do anything for me. No, Lou Klein was a shyster, and, uh, you know, all the guys he trained, uh, he screwed those guys. You know, I'll say it these days. You didn't want to say it back then, but, you know, Mickey Doyle, he'll, he'll tell you. You know, Louie would uh, – you know, take guys on the road, you know, do shows, drive them. He'd char charge them trans, and then he'd bring sandwiches, give the guys sandwiches, and then he'd ch charge the guys for sandwiches, you know, out of his pay, you know, out of their pay. So by the time, you know, the guys got their payoff, Louie took all their payoff. So where no, did you guys, uh, where in the hell did you get, or guys would get two and a half cents per mile for the trains? Where did a half cent come from? I have no idea. You know, my my first three, the only time I've ever paid trans was my first three shows that I did with Ben Justice. And I was his manager and he charged me trans. 
you know, and, you know, I think my trans, because there was four of us, uh, he had a van kind of thing. You know, that's when guys were doing these conversion vans and, you know, seats in the back and, you know, luxury and, you know, big stereos and stuff. And I know he charged me trans, but by the end of the day with the trans, we'd always stop for like a baloney blowout kind of thing, you know, after the shows, uh, you know, and, you know, something to drink. You know, by the time I got home and got my payoff, I, I did, made nothing, you know, that's the way it was. Well, managers didn't make, you know, top pay either, you know, uh, like, you know, anybody, you know, Abdullah Farouk and... You know, was Ernie uh, properly paid though? Somebody of his caliber, because he was a veteran by that point. Uh, I mean, he must have did okay by Sheik, but he had another job because he was a weatherman. You know, at a station in Ohio, so he had other, you know, media jobs. But I mean, he must not have been making too much because then he ended up going to WWF and working for Vince Sr. Where he made you know more money, and plus he can get you know Bobby Harmon over, you know, which Harmon wasn't getting over in Detroit, you know, by no means. Later, become beautiful, Bobby. I only asked you that about Luke Klein. I knew that would that, get you going. So yeah. that was kind of a uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, Let me just ask. So, did you uh, final question? Uh, because of your brilliance as a photographer, did you do you did you keep it up post managing once your wrestling career was done? Did you? I, I'm sure you've kept up with the photography all. Oh yeah, the world. yeah. Oh, well, I've always had you know good cameras and stuff, and I traveled the world, and I've taken you know photographs around the world, and you know, why I say this is that you know back in the day. You know, you, you know, my, myself and my wife, we'd go on vacation. We'd shoot, you know, 2000, you know, photographs. And that's when we we're using film. You know, this is pre-digital. Well, you'd have the photographs, you know, developed, uh, you know, pay exorbitant amounts of money for that many rolls of film, 40, 50 rolls of film. And then you put them in photo albums, you know, and then people, you know, you want to show them your trip. You'd look through a photo album. Well, nowadays, you know, what I did, well, even pre when I got into digital, you know, I would scan my photographs and then I would do, you know, videos. So that way you could watch them on the big screen and I'd put traditional music behind them. So if you go to my, you know, uh, YouTube channel, you know, just type in Dave Brzezinski. Uh, I, I mean, I just did uh, 12 videos on our recent trip to New York City. Uh, and it's all different, you know, topics, you know, just the city itself. And I love shooting graffiti and the Metropolitan Museum of Art and MoMA, the Modern Art Museum and people and faces that I see. So even now, you know, I've done that and I've done, you know, like Egypt and, you know, cities across the world, you know, that I've been to. And right now I'm working on my recent trip that we've been to. Uh, to Amsterdam, Prague, Vienna, and Budapest, Hungary. So I have like 4,000 pictures that, you know, I'm culling right now together and going to do videos and, you know, put traditional music behind everything and put them on YouTube for people to watch. And so I will wrap with this. And as you mentioned, there's the Dave Brzezinski page on YouTube, which I have a link for. We, I will have a link for the Big Time Wrestling and Rocks TV. 
Uh, I do did see a link for the wine, which I'll confirm with you afterwards. We'll put that out there. And is there anything else we want to put out there link-wise for people to see all things Supermouth? Uh, a lot of stuff will be on my YouTube channel. You know, the bands that I've played with, uh, bands that I do publicity stuff for, like uh, the Twist and Tarantulas, Horse Cave Trio with my good friend, you know, uh, Ron DeVore, uh, Lou Simon, uh, the Orbitsons. Uh, I'm doing, you know, Twist and Tarantulas. I'm going to see their show tomorrow, which I haven't seen them in a few years with my good friend Pistol Pete. Uh, other videos on my channel of uh, bands that I play with, like Rival with my good friend Richard Long and Tommy Shather, uh, which no longer exists because our rhythm guitar player Ed Deal had passed away. So there's, you know, things on there uh, on YouTube, you know, my shows for a band called Rival that I was in. And even Neil Young sent us an email. Uh, praising us for our version of Rockin' in the Free World that we did. So I'm always proud of that. So uh, there's just so many things. My photography, my wine. Uh, man, there's so much stuff that, you know, we haven't even touched on today that, you know, if, uh, if I'm fortunate enough for you to bring me back and if fans, you know, like what, you know, the show uh, and Crazy Train, you know, please, uh, fans, uh, this isn't an easy thing, you know, for these gentlemen to do. It costs money. You know, if you're a fan of Crazy Training, you like the show and like all the other shows that they do, please support these guys. Send them a dollar, five bucks, 10, 20, whatever you can afford. Uh, promote independent shows like this. They're wonderful. They're educational. And they got me on it. Of course. And I, I definitely think because we only touched on half the notes that I had, there's definitely going to be a part three because I know there's more stories with you. That's for sure. Hey, we gotta bring so. It's always fun. You know, but, uh, good to see your you know, face, Jonathan. Uh, of Dr. Mike, uh, I can't almost say the same. <laughs> no, I, like I said, I don't know how the hell we got the password earlier, but w with that, as we wrap, do you think I know Terry jumped on for the uh, Children's Hospital event, but do you think he'd jump on and shoot stories with you? Yes. Right and, on. Uh, I, I'll talk Terry into doing it just because right now we're not doing, you know, any more uh, big time memory shows yeah. until, you know, uh, things get straightened out. But, you know, if this we is our form, some other territories, we could cover some other things that you guys yeah. may have had some knowledge experience in. Them. Yeah, me and Terry so, would love to do it. We'd, we, we'd we just let us know when, if, when, and however. Send us, you know, our check. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the royalties. Yeah, we'll, we will make it work for a part three and have Terry involved. God bless Terry Jarrett, and let's bring the Sheik's U.S. title belt from Japan back to the U.S. where it friggin' belongs. Yes. I, yes. I doubt that'll happen, Mike, but it would be great. Exactly. And as I flip through the Brian Solomon's book here, which you had a hand in talking about the Sheik in that book. But Dave, thank you so much for the time. Let me say that. That's the greatest wrestling book I've ever read. Uh, the most researched uh, wrestling book ever done on a guy that he couldn't interview. It was a dead wrestler. 
you know, uh, Brian Solomon did an amazing job. I, I'll say this. If you don't have it, get it. Greatest wrestling book ever written. ECW Press. Dave, thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Mike. Good to see you guys hey, again. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hello, everybody. This is Jumpin' Jim Brunzel, and if I was you, I'd listen to Crazy Train Radio.